We are continuing today in our series on the life of David and looking at the books of First and Second Samuel and considering the theme, uh, the Lord looks at the heart. And we bring up that, that key verse every week that God does not look at the things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance of things, but the Lord looks at the heart. And this morning, uh, we're going to be looking at 1 Samuel chapters 18 through 20. We're just going to be reading selections. Uh, if we read the whole thing, we would that would take up our whole sermon time. So we're just going to read some short parts of that. Uh, but we're going to start at 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 1. And then we'll, we'll skip over after we read a few verses there to the end of chapter 20. And we're going to be considering the friendship between David and Jonathan this morning. We're going to be looking at that and reflecting on the gift of friendship. So let's pray before we read God's word together. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for the gift of your word, that you have spoken to us, that you continue to speak to us. And God, we pray this morning that you would speak to us once again. Lord, we pray that you would prepare our hearts to receive whatever it is you have to say to us today. That we might hear it, that we might absorb it, that you would apply it to our hearts and our minds and our lives. And we ask this all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Starting at chapter 18, verse 1. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as he loved himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. And Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. And this pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. And when the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. And they danced and they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. And then skipping over to verse 20. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him, because he loved him as he loved himself. And then Jonathan said to David, tomorrow is the new moon feast, and you will be missed because your seat will be empty. The day after tomorrow, toward evening, go to the place where you hid when this trouble began and wait by the stone, Ezel. And I will shoot three arrows to the side of it as though I were shooting at a target. And then I will send a boy and say, go find the arrows. If I say to him, look, the arrows are on this side of you, bring them here. And then come, because as surely as the Lord lives, you are safe. There is no danger. But if I say to the boy, look, the arrows are beyond you, then you must go, because the Lord has sent you away. 
And about the matter you and I discussed, remember, the Lord is witness between you and me forever. So David hid in the field, and when the new moon feast came, the king sat down to eat. And he sat in his customary place by the wall opposite Jonathan, and Abner sat next to Saul, but David's place was empty. Saul said nothing that day, for he thought something must have happened to David to make him ceremonially unclean. Surely he is unclean. But the next day, the second day of the month, David's place was empty again. And then Saul said to his son, Jonathan, why hasn't the son of Jesse come to the meal either yesterday or today? And Jonathan answered, David earnestly asked me for permission to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go because our family is observing a sacrifice in the town and my brother has ordered me to be there. If I have found favor in your eyes, let me go away and see my brothers. That is why he has not come to the king's table. And Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse and rebellious woman, don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send someone to bring him to me, for he must die. Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Jonathan asked his father. But Saul hurled his spear at him to kill him. And then Jonathan knew that his father had intended to kill David. So Jonathan got up from the table in fierce anger. On that second day of the feast, he did not eat because he was grieved at his father's shameful treatment of David. And in the morning, Jonathan went out to the field for his meeting with David, and he had a small boy with him. And he said to the boy, run and find the arrows I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the boy came to the place where Jonathan's arrow had fallen, Jonathan called out after him. Isn't the arrow beyond you? And then he shouted, hurry, go quickly, don't stop. The boy picked up the arrow and returned to his master. The boy knew nothing about all of this, only Jonathan and David knew. And then Jonathan gave his weapons to the boy and said, go, carry them back to town. And after the boy had gone, David got up from the south side of the stone and he bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. And then they kissed each other and they wept together. But David wept the most. And Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. And then David left, and Jonathan went back to the town. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So our passage today, it picks up right where we left off last week. If you were here, David has just killed Goliath, the great Philistine champion, the giant who had been taunting Israel, the armies of Israel for a long time, for 40 days. And David finally went down and he defeated him. And this is what maybe was the greatest or or one of many of David's great moments of glory in his life. And it has changed his entire life at this point. David's life has changed forever. No longer will David just be a simple shepherd boy from a small village. No longer will he be the youngest brother in a family that had no standing. No longer will he be anonymous, for he has just defeated Goliath, the giant, the bane of the Israelite army. And by defeating Goliath, he's basically defeated the Philistine army as well, giving Israel a great victory over their main rivals, their arch enemies. And David has now become a national hero overnight. He's become an instant celebrity. People know his name. They're singing songs about him already. 
And immediately after the battle, David is taken before King Saul. Saul wants to debrief with him, but really Saul wants to check this guy out a bit more. He's met David before. David has come and sang songs for him. He stayed in David's palace. But all of a sudden, Saul has a new interest in David. Who is this guy who had the audacity to go up against Goliath when nobody else would? I want to know more about him. And so he says, who, whose son are you? And David answers, I am the son of Jesse. And that's where our story picks up today. And we're told right at the very beginning of chapter 18, that as soon as David had finished speaking to Saul, that Jonathan became one in spirit with David. And he loved David as he loved himself. Other translations say it this way, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as he loved his own soul. And Jonathan made a covenant with David. And here is the beginning of this remarkable relationship, this friendship. I want you to take a minute, if you would, and just think about uh, the, the relationships in your life that have defined who you are, that have shaped who you are as a person. Who are the people that come to mind for you as you think about this? Just like all of us, David's life was shaped and defined by his significant relationships, and we've seen several of them already. We have David with his father Jesse and his brothers. We have David and Samuel, the great prophet who came and anointed him as king. We have David and Saul, the one who's already there as king, who's been rejected, and David's going to take his place. We're going to get to these relationships later, but we also have David and Bathsheba, David and Nathan, David and his son Solomon, and there are more too. Uh, the book that I recommended to you all called Leap Over a Wall that was written by Eugene Peterson, he, he uh, focuses on many of these different relationships in different chapters, and I would commend that book to you again today. But this morning, we're going to focus on David and Jonathan, David and Jonathan, one of the defining relationships in David's life for the good. And if you know anything about the story of David and Jonathan, then you know it is a story of friendship. In fact, it's often seen as being the defining biblical account of friendship. If you want to know what the Bible has to say about friendship, you can go and, and look at your Bible app and put friendship in and pull up all of the verses that talk about friendship and friends, and that's a good thing to do. But also, looking at the narrative, looking at the story of two people who had a friendship with each other is going to give you the best picture of what the Bible has to say about friendship. And for many people, this is where they turn the relationship between Jonathan and David, to see what God has to say about friendships. We skipped a lot, uh, and when we, walked, when we read uh, the passage this morning, we skipped all of chapter 19, but what we're seeing in chapters 18, 19, and 20 of 1 Samuel is this ongoing deterioration of the relationship between David and Saul. David and Saul. Saul is, is jealous of David because David is getting more praise than him. It starts off good at first. David is, is called to the palace to play music for Saul when he's being troubled in his mind and in his spirit, and that, that calms Saul down a little bit. And then after he defeats Goliath, you heard uh, Saul starts to put him in charge of different things in the army, and he has great success. But all of that changes when all of the women from the villages and towns come out and start singing songs in praise of David. And they say that Saul killed his thousands, 
But David killed his tens of thousands. And for someone, a king like Saul, who cares so much about the outward appearance of things, then this is a real problem. And Saul gets very angry. And all of a sudden, David has become a threat to him. Now, at the same time, we're told that Saul is being tormented by an evil spirit in his mind. And so the combination of these things together, uh, Saul having, being tormented by an evil spirit and David being, uh, getting more praise and more fame than him is making for a dangerous recipe. And Saul starts trying to kill David. And there's lots of different ways that he goes about doing this. He starts to send him on these dangerous missions, these life-threatening missions against the Philistines, hoping, hoping that as David tries to fulfill them, that he will be killed in the meantime. There's several times where Saul just all out hurls a spear at David. And we read this happen at least three or four times in these chapters. They'll be in the same room together, and, and then all of a sudden Saul just throws a spear at him. And every time David escapes... We even see that Saul sends uh, some commandos into David's house in the middle of the night to kill him in his sleep. And this is even when David is married to Saul's daughter, that this is something that Saul wants to happen. This is how badly he wants David to be killed. But each time, David escapes. And then we have the story that we just read at the end of chapter 20, where Jonathan doesn't want to believe that his father is out for David and going to take his life. And finally, Saul just says, David needs to die. And that's when Jonathan knows. And so he goes and tells David, you need to flee. You need to run away. But parallel to this deterioration in the relationship between Saul and David, we also see Jonathan's relationship with David. And it is growing and strengthening at the same time. And Jonathan starts to intercede for David and tries to preserve his life, even with his own father, Saul. And the reason for this is because Jonathan had become one in spirit with David. He loved David as he loved himself. I like that image that their souls were knit together. And one pastor, as he was preaching on this passage, a sermon he preached on this passage, talked about this idea that, that uh, David and Jonathan's friendship was something that was given to them by God. That God was the one who knit their souls together. The first time Jonathan sees David, all of a sudden it says their souls were knit together together. And I think this is often the way that things happen in the best of friendships. It's not necessarily something that we decide to have happen or that we decide to pursue. We say, that person, I'm going to be friends with them. But often it's much more organic than that. When God knits two people's souls together, one of my best friends who I met when I was in my late 20s, uh, he ended up being my roommate for several years before Vale and I got married. I remember that our friendship started because we were at the same party and we just kept laughing at the same jokes. We never met each other before, but we kept laughing loudly at the same jokes and then our eyes met and it was like instant friendship. Uh, and that's a friendship that carries on to this day. And in fact, it's sort of how Vale and I got together as well. We just kept laughing at the same jokes. Uh, uh, that turned into a beautiful marriage that continues to this day as well. So it's this great thing that God does sometimes between people and knitting them together. We don't always actively pursue these things. They are gifts to be received. I like what Eugene Peterson has to say about friendship uh, in his book that we've uh, talked about before. He says, friendship is a much underestimated aspect of spirituality. It's every bit as significant as prayer and fasting. 
like using water and bread and wine in the sacraments. Friendship takes what is common to the human experience and turns it into something holy. I think Peterson is really onto something here, the significance of friendship in our spiritual lives. Friendship is one of those experiences that is common to all people. We desire friendship and we have friends in our lives. When I asked you all to think about the significant relationships that have defined your life or that have shaped your life, I would be willing to bet that most of you, it thought of at least one friend or or perhaps several friends over the course of your lives that have made a big impact on you. And these people are gifts from God. Friendship is one of those things that God has given us that makes life richer and fuller. A good friend can help us to experience God's hope and joy, God's forgiveness and acceptance. A good friend helps us experience God's grace. When you think about your friendships, it's often our friends who bring us to Christ, who lift us up when we're down, who pray for us when we need it, who give us a word from the Lord that we need to hear sometimes. I think it's often through our friendships that we experience the joy of the Lord when we laugh together, when we celebrate things together, when we have fellowship together. And I think often we can learn what it means that God delights in us through the experience of friendship with other people when we delight in them in that way. Peterson goes on to say that each of us have dealings with hundreds of people who the moment they set eyes on us, they begin to calculate what use we can be to them, what they can get out of us. This is what we see in Saul's relationship with David. We meet hundreds of people who take one look at us and they make a snap judgment. And then they slot us into a category so they don't have to deal with us as a person. But then someone enters our life who isn't looking for someone to use, who is leisurely enough to find out what's really going on in us, who is secure enough not to exploit our weaknesses or to attack our strengths, who recognizes our inner life and understands the difficulty of living out our inner convictions and who confirms what is deepest within us, a friend, a friend. A friend like that is truly a gift, and this is the kind of friend that Jonathan was for David, David would not have been David as we know him if it weren't for Jonathan. Now that's not to say that David's life would have taken some sort of of different trajectory without Jonathan. Of course, we know that God has chosen David to replace Saul as the king of Israel. And that still would have happened uh, even if Jonathan had not been in the picture. But we see that God uses Jonathan in David's life to bring about God's purposes for David. And Jonathan, as David's friend, was committed to seeing God's purposes for David be fulfilled. And that is a beautiful quality of some friendships. Having someone who is committed to seeing God's purposes for another person fulfilled in them. When you approach friendships that way, it changes the whole nature of the relationship. If that's what you are committed to in someone else's life. When we start to look closely at the friendship between David and Jonathan, there's several things that we'll notice. And for me, at least, the first was this. When I used to hear about Jonathan and David growing up, I used to imagine them as being peers, two guys the same age, probably young men, uh, same interests in life, same footing, 
uh, equal, equal playing field. But when we start to look at it more, we see that Jonathan is really the one who is in the advantaged position, at least when this relationship starts. Jonathan is the son of the king. He's the crown prince. He's the one who's got the wealth and the riches and the status and everything else. Uh, there's not necessarily much for him to be gained in his relationship with David other than that David has become this overnight celebrity. But Jonathan reaches out to David and starts to befriend him. And when we look at it even more, we see that Jonathan is the one who took most of the initiative in this relationship. We're told that Jonathan is the one who loved David as himself, as his own soul. We're told that Jonathan is the one who made a covenant with David. Jonathan gave David his robe and his armor and his sword and his bow and his belt. All of the action verbs are on Jonathan's side. Jonathan loves, Jonathan makes, Jonathan gives. And at least at the beginning of their relationship, David simply receives from Jonathan's love and generosity. And not only does Jonathan take most of the initiative in their relationship, but he's also the one who pays the highest cost for their friendship as well. Part of what makes Jonathan's friendship with David stand out so much is that, like we said before, it's held in contrast to his father's relationship with David. Jonathan's commitment to David leads him to work against Saul's evil plans in order to protect his friend. And what's most remarkable about the fact that Jonathan is working against his own father is that by doing that, he's also working against his own power and prestige and status by helping David. Because as we said, Jonathan is the son of the king. He is the crown prince. He's the one who should have been Saul's successor, waiting for the throne. He has everything going for him in life. He's also a successful military leader. He is popular and well-liked among the people. Jonathan would have made a great king. And yet he lays his own ambition aside, his own desire for power and recognition, whatever he had of that, in order to support his friend David. And Jonathan humbles himself and gives up everything he has going for him in order to lift up his friend, David. We have that great scene where Jonathan gives David his robe and his tunic and his sword and his bow and his belt. And it's this, this beautiful image. And it's symbolic of their entire relationship. Because here you have Jonathan giving up all of the things that symbolize his position in this nation that he is the one who is meant to be king, and he gives them all to David. It makes you wonder if, if Jonathan had some inkling of what was to come for them, that he was never actually going to be king, but he knew that David was, and he voluntarily gives over these things to show that he is in support of that for David. Last week, we talked about Eugene Peterson's idea of having uh, God-soaked imaginations, which means allowing God's story of redemption, the story of the Bible, to form the way that we see and understand the world. And Peterson talks about it as God-soaked imaginations. John Calvin has the same idea. He talks about the uh, scriptures as being like spectacles or glasses, and we see the world clearly through them when we look through scripture. C.S. Lewis talks about the same idea as well. C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says, I believe in the scripture, that it's true, in the same way that I believe that the sun exists. It's not so much because I see it itself, but because by its light, I see everything else. This is the way that we should look at scripture. 
that when we read it, it helps us to make sense of the world that we live in. We understand God's truth and the way that he has designed things. And so when we look at David and Jonathan's friendship, when we look through the lens of scripture, we can ask ourselves, how might this shape the way that we see our own friendships in life? When we reflect on the friendship between David and Jonathan, how can it change the way that we go about our own friendships? And there's some obvious qualities of friendship that rise to the surface. Then when we look at Jonathan and David, we see love, we see humility, we see self-sacrifice and loyalty, and all of these are, are characteristics that we'll come back to. They're all important parts of any good friendship. But there are two ideas in particular, two things that characterize their friendship that I want for us to consider today. And the first one is this, that there was a covenant between them, that there was a covenant in their relationship with each other. And the second idea is this, that God, the Lord, was a witness between them. That's a phrase that's used a couple of times in chapter 20. And these ideas aren't completely separate from each other. They're not mutually exclusive. They, they work together in Jonathan and David's friendship to strengthen it, to make it better and stronger. But we're going to look at each one of them one at a time. So the first one is this, that there was a covenant between them. David and Jonathan bound themselves to each other. And what I want us to consider for a moment is the difference between a covenant and a contract. A covenant and a contract. These are two relational agreements that people have, but so often the world works on the idea of contracts. We have contracts. We have contracts at work. We have contracts with the flats that we rent. We have contracts in all sorts of different ways. And a contract is very uh, business-like. It's legally binding, and it defines the relationship. If you keep up your end of the bargain, then I'll keep up my end of the bargain. But if either one of us stops, if either one of us fails to keep up our end of the bargain, then the contract is null and void, and we can go our separate ways. And we don't have to worry about that relationship anymore. And so many times, the world works on contracts. But a covenant works a little bit differently, at least biblically, the way that we think about it. A covenant is more of a partnership where two people or two parties are working together for a common purpose, but also where the two are committed to each other's benefit. They're committed to the well-being of one another. And there may be conditions or expectations in a covenant with people have with each other, but you don't just leave the relationship if the other party fails because you're committed to them. You're committed to the other person, and you are committed to that relationship. Imagine if every time you messed up in the important relationships in your life, the other person said, well, you haven't kept up your end of the deal, so I'm out of here. <laughs> Think of the way that that would diminish the relationships we have with other people, the way that it would weaken them. But this isn't how we go about our best relationships Often when we think of the idea of a covenant between two people, we would point to marriage, the covenant of marriage that people make with each other. And the traditional vows, at least in the English-speaking world, that people make with each other usually involve making promises something like this. I, forsaking all others, commit myself to you for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, for better or for worse. And oftentimes, we end by saying something to the effect of, as long as we both shall live, or until death do us part. 
Now, the reason I bring that up is because this is the kind of relationship that we see that Jonathan and David have with each other, that there is a commitment to one another, to the other person, to their well-being, and to that relationship. And there's even a sort of, for better or for worse, piece of that that we see in their friendship with each other. When the other person fails, the other one isn't necessarily going to just cut and run. There is a grace that is part of that picture in their friendship with each other. It is covenantal. So this is the first characteristic of their relationship that I think makes it so strong. And the second one is this, that the Lord was a witness between them. That God was in the middle of their relationship with each other. In the last scene of our passage today, when David and Jonathan, they bid farewell to each other, they're weeping as they say goodbye. It's the last time that they're going to see each other. They say, the Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. And there's a recognition for them that God is an integral part of their relationship with each other. As Christians, we might talk about this as having Christ be at the center of our friendship or at the center of our relationship with another person. And it reminds me of the passage in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, uh, verses 9 through 12, which is a description of the importance of community, of how we're not meant to walk through this life alone. It's, it's another good passage to consider as we reflect on friendship. And it says this, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to the one who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. And again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. And then it ends by saying this, a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. And there's this interesting shift in this passage there at the end because it goes and it says two, two, two. Two are better than one. Two, 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 and then you end with three all of a sudden. And where does this third one come from? And even the Bible commentators from the early church looked at that passage and they interpreted that third chord as being Jesus Christ. Two are better than one, but Christ in the center of a relationship is the strongest of all. And this is what we see between David and Jonathan, that God was a witness between them. God was an active and integral part of their friendship with each other. Friends, what does this kind of a friendship look like? How can it be brought about? I know many of you already know from personal experience, a lot of you can look at your friendships in life and relationships in life and say, I know what this kind of a friendship is like because I have this kind of a friendship. And thanks be to God. Certainly relationships like these are marked by prayer and by humility, by encouragement in, in the faith and by joy. And we see good advice from the scriptures, especially in the New Testament. The writer of Hebrews tells us to spur one another on toward love and good deeds. This is a good way to go about this kind of a friendship. Paul writes to the Thessalonians that they should encourage one another and build each other up. And perhaps the best picture of this kind of friendship is described by Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, this passage about love. It says, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, 
It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. What a great way to have our relationships be defined by loving each other in this way. Which of your relationships have Christ in the center of them in this way? Which of your relationships do you have the desire for them to look like this? We're talking about friendship this morning, but of course, all of our best relationships have elements of friendship in them, whether it's with siblings or parents or children, spouses or coworkers. They all, if they're good relationships, relationships have aspects of friendship to them. So how might we start to be friends to other people in this way? And that's an important question to ask ourselves as well. For many of us, we might look at at Jonathan and David's friendship and, and want God to give us a friend or more friends like Jonathan. We would look and say, God, I need a friend like Jonathan. I need someone to help build me up in the faith like that. I need someone who's committed to seeing your purposes for me fulfilled in my life and who's going to approach me that way. And, and this is a good prayer. We should pray for friends like this. Of all the things that we might ask God for in life, of all the things that we do ask God for in life, this is a good one to pray for. Uh, the kind of prayer that, that God might honor. But I also wonder if in God's economy of things that we might turn that prayer outward and say, Lord, how can I be a friend like Jonathan to other people? How can I be a friend like Jonathan to other people? How can I love my friends and my family and other people important in my life in the way that Jonathan loved David? How can I be committed to seeing your purposes worked out in other people's lives in this sort of way? If we saw our relationships with each other as covenantal, as knit together by God, as as God being in the center of them, imagine what that might mean for those friendships and relationships. Imagine what that might mean for our church, the International Church of Prague, if we went about our relationships with each other in that way. The kind of relationship that David and Jonathan had with each other was a gift, but it was a gift that they nurtured with each other. Before we close today, I want to consider where we might see Christ in this passage. Uh, We uphold Jonathan's friendship with David because in it we also see an image of what Christ has done for us. In Jonathan, we see an image of Christ. As we said before, Jonathan's the one who takes the initiative with David. He's the one who's in the higher position, who has the upper hand. He befriends David. He's the one who makes a covenant with David. He binds himself to David in that way, becoming a partner with him, committed to David's well-being. And he also gave up a lot to do so. If I may return to Philippians chapter 2, a passage that we looked at several months ago, I think that we see uh, Jonathan living out what Paul was talking about in that chapter, where he says this, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility value others, above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, 
who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. This is what we see Jonathan do with David, but more than that, it's what Christ did with us. There's lots of images that we can use when we talk about Jesus, who he is in our life. We might talk about him as our teacher. We might talk about, about him as our Lord. We might talk about, about him as our brother or our king. But I think one image that we also need to hold on to is Jesus as our friend, that Christ has called us friends. Now, we can take that idea too far and look at Jesus as being our buddy who's just there to, to have a good time with us, okay? So we want to remember that he is our Lord and our King, God incarnate. But I think this is part of what's so amazing about our relationship with Jesus Christ, is that here we have the God of the universe who helped create all things, the heavens and the earth, who came down to be with us, who took the initiative with us, who extended his grace to us first, who made covenant with us, who bound himself to us, knowing that we were going to fail and that we were not going to live up to our side of the bargain, and who gave up a lot to do so, who humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. And Jesus, in John chapter 15, calls us his friends. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I have learned from my father, I have made known to you. Friends, our Lord Jesus Christ has called us his friends. And I do think that as we think about our lives and how we live, uh, we try to be Jonathans to each other because we're trying to be Christ to one another. And I think there's a witness piece of this, that imperfect reflections though we are, when we befriend people in this way, we show them what Christ's love for them might look like. And when people look at a church where people love each other this way, then they can look at that community and say, there's something different about the way that those people love each other. And I want to be a part of that kind of a love. When we try to love one another in this way, we do it in the power of the Holy Spirit as an outpouring of Christ's love, which is poured into us. Remembering that he has called us his friends, that he has laid down his life for us, and that we love because he first loved us. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for the gift of friendship. And Lord, we pray that you would give us good friends, people who are committed to seeing your purposes for us worked out in our lives. But we also pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would make us friends like that, that we might be Jonathans to the Davids in our lives. And we pray that by loving each other this way, that other people would, would know your love for them as well that people might be strengthened in their faith, that people might come to know you as we want love one another as you have loved us. So we pray all of this in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen.